Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz best known for directing and producing the Sundance documentary, Kusama Infinity. Our special guest today is the Academy Award-winning short documentary director and entrepreneur, Ben Proudfoot, the creative force behind Breakwater Studios. The studio's work has been recognized by the Academy Awards, the Emmys, the Peabody Awards, Critics' Choice Documentary Awards, the James Beard Awards, the Sundance Film Festival, Telluride, and the Tribeca Film Festival, among others. Proudfoot was named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 for his leadership and innovation in the brand-funded documentary space. He hails from Halifax, Nova Scotia, and is a graduate of the University of Southern California. Proudfoot is an accomplished Light of hand magician and has performed at the, the magic castle in los angeles today we'll discuss his oscar-winning film the queen of basketball thank you claire so much for the wonderful introduction and thank you ben for taking time out of your busy schedule to discuss your brilliant documentary the queen of basketball for anyone who hasn't seen it yet can you please explain what the film's about Absolutely, and thank you for for having me. Uh, I love I love talking about this this story and talking about Lucy. So, the Queen of Basketball is a twenty minute short documentary uh, that stars Lucy Harris, uh, who tells the story of her life. She was an amazing basketball player, uh, one of the most significant basketball American basketball players of the twentieth century. She was the first and only woman ever to be drafted into the NBA, first woman and the first woman of color to be enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, she was the first woman to score a basket in the Olympics of all time. She, she had that honor, and she came from a tiny town uh, called Minter City in the Mississippi Delta, and uh, she tells her own story uh, in this film. Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, one of the things that struck me in the film, she said in high school, kids teased her because she was six foot three, and they said that she was long and tall and that tall. But I'm so glad that she knew that that wasn't true and that she had so much potential, and she obviously went on to accomplish so much. And I'm wondering, how did you come across this story? Yeah. One of those moments where your life changes is a fork in the road and your life goes in one direction uh, rather than the other. So we were, you know, our company, Breakwater Studios, were constantly seeking out and making short documentaries. And a colleague of mine, Haley Watson, who's also a director and a cinematographer, suggested Lucy's story to me and said, just look up Lucy Harris. And 
I'm, I'm very interested in stories where if history had gone slightly differently, you might well know this person. Uh, but for whatever reason, you don't. And as soon as I Googled Lucy's name, I saw this amazing uh, resume of accomplishments that I, you know, just, just went over. And I was like, how do I not know this person? You know, the first and only woman ever to be drafted into the NBA. All these accomplishments. She, she seems to be, you know, still with us. Um, she should be on our money. I mean, this is an amazing American story. Uh, and it was really easy to get a hold of her. Her name was often misspelled on the Internet. And I just thought it just seems like uh, there's a gap between this person's significance and the respect and recognition that she's gotten. And, you know, a short documentary could could help close the gap. And so from the first conversation with her where she said, oh, yeah, I've got a, I've got a story and I'd love to talk to you, it became our mission as a company for the next two years to try to close that gap as much as we could and remain uh, a personal mission for me. Well, I think also um, it's not just that a short documentary would help, but that an amazing short documentary would help, which is what you made. And I'm wondering how much time passed between the time you first talked to her on the phone and then when you were able to meet her in person and, and start filming. It was pretty quick, honestly. Um, it was in the depths of the pandemic, like uh, July 2020, and, you know, I, I got, I think, I think I got a hold of maybe her daughter first and then, and then I spoke with her on the phone, but we were, we were in Mississippi within a few weeks. I remember I called her and I explained who I was and I asked her if she would be interested in participating in something like that. And she just immediately said, yeah, sure. You know, come on over. And I said, I said, okay, well, we, we should, you know, pick what, what dates work for you. She said, I'm retired. You can come anytime. <laughs> and so we just sort of picked our date, and we, Brandon, who produced it and uh, was the cinematographer, and I hopped in a little van, and we drove to Mississippi in two days, stopping in Texas overnight. And um, we built this big plastic barrier and this big house that we rented so that, you know, because it, uh, it was the kind of, it was the era where people were scared of like that they were going to get COVID from their, their uh, Amazon packages because, you know, uh, we thought maybe it was trim, transmitted that way. So we actually built this whole setup and then we left it for three days for the COVID germs to die. That's, what, <laughs> that's how cautious we were. Um, and then, so she came in on that side and we were on the other side. And then I interviewed her for, I think it was like 11 hours over two days, something like that. Wow, that's yeah. Well, first of all, it's great to be reminded of the everything filmmakers were going through at that time because it was very complicated. <laughs> um, and and so you filmed her over the course of two days, the interviews. And I'm wondering, were you able to film everything else you needed during those two days, or was there more time spent filming as well? We we spent we spent I think three or four days with her because there was a few sort of B-roll sequences that we wanted to get her visiting her um, alma mater at Delta State that's in the film. We filmed a little bit with her at home. It was tricky. You know, 
the normal way that we would shoot B-roll, we didn't, we couldn't really do where you're like in someone's house or whatever, just because we didn't think it was safe. So we had this great interview, long interview, um, but we really didn't have a lot of opportunities that we saw to do B-roll safely. So it left a big hole in the movie that would need to be filled by archival material. And that was one of the challenges when we started this project was there were no, you know, you could, no footage of her playing was accessible. And it, we thought maybe it doesn't exist. Um, we only had a few photos of her. And everything changed when we found this huge trove of 16 millimeter films and tapes in the depth of the archive at Delta State University that had never been digitized, wasn't cataloged, wasn't searchable. The only way you would know about it is if you walked into the back corner of the archive and said, what's this? Which is exactly what we did. And with the help of the archivist who knew about it, who was kind enough to show us back there, um, the, the movie flickered to life. And between that and Lucy's interview, we had the building blocks of the film. I'm so glad to hear that, you know, someone saved that footage and that it did exist. And it really is incredible to see. Uh, so in addition to having this great archival and a strong story, the music choices in the film are also really terrific. And there's an important scene where Lucy's leading her team to victory against a rival team, Immaculata. And I was wondering if you could please talk about the music you used in that scene and if you explored other options before you finalized it. I mean, I think it's super cool what you picked, but I was just wondering if you could talk about the process. Yeah, so thinking back to that scene, so so it's this, it's a really, really important scene. It's a pivotal scene because it's the moment when Lucy, when a star is born, right? It was their first championship. They're up against the three-time reigning champion. They're this tiny town from the Mississippi Delta. Um, and so this is like the big moment when Lucy turns from a promising young basketball player in obscurity to the nation's top female athlete. And we, in the editing process, um, we tried a bunch of different things and pretty quickly landed on this huge Vivaldi, um, Gloria and Excelsior piece. And it was, it felt right because both it was big and it also kind of like spoke to the divine, her divine talent, so to speak. Um, and also it played off the fact that the opposing team in Maculai was, was a Catholic school. Um, and, and so it just sort of like, as soon as we laid that track down, it was like, oh yeah, this is, this is a great, uh, a great choice. Um, and that was, and that was our producer, Elizabeth Brooke. And then Stephanie um, Owens, who is my co-editor on the film, when she saw it, she was like, it needs more oomph, you know, I need, I, I don't know, it needs, it needs a little bit more chutzpah to it. And what about some, like, percussion? What if we added some percussion in there? And that was a brilliant idea. And so it became this blending of this, um, you know, Vivaldi choral piece with, uh, drum line and Nicholas Jacobson Larson, who did the score, 
did an amazing job of combining the two, which just kind of like brought the whole thing together, which brought, you know, Lucy's, uh, it, it just, it just showed the power of, of Lucy in all these different ways through the music. And it, it turned out to be, I think, one of the most thrilling sequences in the movie uh, when, they, when they win uh, the game in the end. Yeah, I think it's it's really it was an incredible choice, and you know, obviously, a music is uh, I'm sorry, a movie is half sound, and I think this is just a great example of using sound and you know the the soundtrack to really highlight what's going on. And another thing I really love about it is when you see those nuns in the crowd, you know, in the middle of um, yeah this this section. So it just works great. Um, so after participating in the Olympics, Lucy's career unfortunately ended prematurely since there was no WNBA at that time. And without a venue to utilize her just extraordinary talent, she struggled financially and she went on to battle mental illness, which can be a, a very sensitive topic. And I'm wondering, did you have any concerns about including that in the film and particularly about how to address it? I, I did have a lot of concerns about it, but Lucy was so clear about the fact that she wanted to include it. I didn't know that about Lucy going into the interview. Um, but as we kind of tracked through her life story, she brought it up and told me all about it. And I asked her explicitly, I said, is this something that you want to, you know, to be included in the movie? And she said, yes, because she wanted to do what she could to erode the stigma around mental health. And so when it came to the edit, there was no question about, you know, how to handle it or whether to include it. it those were her wishes. And so it was important to get that right. And I was, um, yeah, we had our marching orders from Lucy. Yeah, I think it's, it is um, a powerful part of the film. And it really, for me, it does make me wonder if she had had different opportunities, would, would, um, you know, would her path also have been different in terms of potentially maybe not suffering from mental illness? It's, um, you may know, I also, I worked on a film um, about an artist who had mental illness and likewise, um, was up against many obstacles in her career. And I sometimes wonder if she had been treated with the same respect as her male peers, would that have surfaced or, or not? But in any event, I do think, as you said, it, it really helps to destigmatize it by shining a light on it. And, and I think it just helps make the story that much more powerful. So on. Yeah. The, I also the, say, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I also think that, there's also something to be said about, you know, like, okay, like that, that makes sense. Like, oh, if she didn't have this huge change or disappointment or whatever, then maybe she wouldn't have faced it. But I, I, I think there's also something to be said about the fact that, you know, it's not always, it's not always you know, me mental health and mental illness are not always situational, you know. Um, and and it, there's another version where she is a celebrated national hero, and everybody knows about her, and she experiences the exact same mental health circumstances, and like so many athletes, uh, brave athletes are doing today, talks about it and reveals it and, and destigmatizes it from the world stage. I think that's probably the more likely outcome is that Lucy would have, Lucy would have been a much earlier 
advocate for mental health in America if she had had the world's attention. I, on, honestly, that's my, like, having thought about it and gone through it and talked to her family and remembering what Lucy said, I feel like her struggles with mental health uh, were not situational. I think they were, um, they were something that she was going to have to face one way or another. Well, again, she she definitely, I think, does everyone, you know, a favor by by publicly talking about it. So, I think, you know, it's it's, it's great how it got included in the film. Your team on this documentary included some VIP executive producers, and I was wondering if you could please tell us how you connected with those individuals and how they helped the film find its audience. Yeah, so we. I mean, you could could not imagine a more perfect and wonderful and, and star-studded uh, executive producer pair than Shaquille O'Neal and Stephen Curry. Um, Shaq, who just, like, immediately embraced Lucy and embraced the film and sort of asked the question, how can I help? What, what, what can I do to help? You know, our goal was clear. Make, you know, get as many people as possible aware of who Lucy Harris is. We want her to be a household name. Help us make her a household name. And he did that. He helped us do that. And he just like, you know, Shaq has, you know, 100 million followers or something. And he was just relentless in coming up with ideas and finding ways to get the, get the movie out there, to advocate for it, to sit down and talk about Lucy, to talk about what the film meant to him. And then later... Um, when Stefan came on board, it was like unbelievable because it was this marriage of, you know, generations between Shaq and Steph getting behind Lucy and both of them recognizing that they stand on Lucy's shoulders as well. And I think it was just this really wonderful cathartic moment of, uh, you know, athletic peers championing each other. And I, I admire those guys for all the work and, and effort they put into really getting this campaign kickstarted on the world stage. I don't think we could have done that without them. I think um, they did great work uh, in helping make Lucy a, a household name or getting closer, closer to that than we ever have been before. Well, I'm so glad you had the good fortune to have these powerful advocates, you know, rooting for you and rooting for the film and helping to, you know, get more eyes on it. I'm wondering when Lucy finally got to see the film, what was her reaction? Mm, this is, that was a beautiful moment. It was in New York City. The film premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, and uh, it was an outdoor screening at Hudson Yards, and her whole family were there. All her kids were there. And uh, we brought her out from Mississippi. She looked beautiful. She was all done up. And uh, she insisted that she did not want to see the film until the premiere. <laughs> Which that's, is like that's extremely, fascinating. extremely nerve-wracking. And because that's like, you know, step one is to show the person who's in the film because you want to make sure they're okay with it before, you know, it goes, goes wide. And she was insistent. So I show, you know, I was just going off her kids. Her kids loved it and they looked over it and they gave it the thumbs up. So I was going off of that, but I had no idea what she was going to think. I mean, I knew that she hadn't seen any of this footage ever, maybe if, if not, you know, you know, for, for 45 years. 
So I knew it was going to be a powerful emotional experience for everybody and kind of was bracing for impact. And when the film played, I was sitting right sort of adjacent to her, just behind her. And I was just watching her watch this movie and, and laugh at different things and enjoy it. And her kids laughing and just, and just the audience enjoying and reveling in it. And they knew that she was there. And when the movie ended, it, the short was in the middle of a, a series of short shorts in the block. And the audience gave her a standing ovation. And that was extremely moving, um, extremely moving moment. And later, we had dinner. We went out for dinner, all of us. And later, I helped her get into her car to go back to the hotel. And I didn't know this, but this would be the last time I saw her. She gave me a big hug. And she whispered in my ear, thank you for what you did. And, you know, I'm not sure if it's going to get any better than that. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty um, emotional and satisfying as a filmmaker to know that she, she felt like we did a good job. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was in July of 2021. And um, that was the last time I saw Lucy. Well, I'm so glad you got to have that moment with her, and you're absolutely right when you, you know, put your heart into this kind of project. You really want the the person represented to love it, you know, so I'm glad you got to experience that. The film, of course, went on to win an Oscar in the shorts category, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that experience and how it's changed the opportunities available to you. Yeah, so so Lucy passed away in January, um, she got to see a good amount of the film's success. I think that she saw, I think the film had been shortlisted. Um, and so fast forwarding to the end of March when we were at the ceremony with her family, I mean, it was just crazy, right? Like she passes away suddenly at 66, January 18th, I think it was. And March 27th, we're sitting in the Dolby Theater, you know, uh, at the Academy Awards, waiting to find out. And so, like, it, it really, um, you know, the film was nominated, like, four days after her funeral services. So it, mm. it's important to kind of remember the context of all this and that, like, there was a real heavy mix of celebration and grief happening for everyone. And when the film was named as the, as the winner, honestly, I just felt a huge relief. I felt a huge satisfaction. I, I kind of felt like um, maybe a lawyer would winning a case is the closest thing I can come up with. Um, and, you know, I heard her family shouting hallelujah from the balcony of the Dolby Theater. Wow. And that was a powerful moment. It just was like, wow, we have, we have, we're one, a huge leap forward in inscribing her name in history. And it was, it was beautiful. Well, it's wonderful. It worked out. And I'm, and you know, I'm so glad at least her children got to see it. It would have been great if she could have seen it too. Um, and then how has it changed your your career? Because I know, obviously, winning an Oscar, that opens a lot of doors. 
Yeah, you know, it has changed. It's interesting. It's like the people that really know you and love you don't treat you any differently. <laughs> You're the same. And then everybody else treats you a little differently, and some people treat you very differently. So it's interesting to sort of watch how the, the whole thing swirls around. But, I mean, for me, um, you know, obviously I'm the one who picks up the statue, but the I really do – believe and I, I don't say this with humility I know we made a good film and that we're good filmmakers but I think the reason why the film won is because of Lucy and the story that she told so that's an important thing for to remember and to reaffirm about what happened here the other thing I think when thinking about kind of like how an award changes your life or your career is you know what you want to do with it um, and what your goals are and is it about leveraging an award to become as famous as possible or as rich as possible or what have you. I don't think it is. At least that's not what I want to do. I really love making films that otherwise wouldn't have been made. And I love making films that a lot of people see. And frankly, I really love right now in my career, I love making short documentaries. They're the most democratic form of cinema and some of the most exciting stories can be told in 15 and 20 minutes and like you're not going to get rich making short documentaries but it's a pretty pure pure form of expression and so I've been doubling down on that um, and have not um, you know have not seen this as an opportunity to totally change everything and upend everything we're we're just doubling down on what got us to this point, which is telling stories we believe in in a short documentary form. Well, it seems like you've found your calling. And uh, you mentioned, you know, you don't get rich doing short documentaries, but obviously most people don't get rich making feature documentaries either. So that part of it. Yeah. Um, well, it depends who you, you know, are. You know, depends I, do. I think there's are. a lot of people getting rich. I think there's a lot of people getting rich off a documentary, frankly. I mean, Historically, that certainly was the case. And if you're making, you know, if you're making a, a niche, nuanced film that, you know, is not for a wide audience, it might, might be hard. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of people getting rich making documentaries, and especially documentary series. Certainly that has changed drastically over the last 10 years, um, based on the fact that streamers are looking to, you know, chew up as much of people's time as humanly possible. And it's less expensive to do that with nonfiction than with fiction. And so that's why money keeps pouring over the, the, uh, the fence into documentary. Uh, one of the really cool things about this film is that it's available for free for anyone who wants to see it. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about how it ended up on the New York Times YouTube channel. Yeah, so the New York Times has been an unbelievable partner to me and to our company. Uh, I think we just released our 16th collaboration together last week. Um, and so OpDocs has been around for 10 years. I believe they've released something like 400 films over the course of 10 years. Um, the high watermark in terms of short documentary distribution. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing thing. The film gets to appear on the front page of the New York Times. 
and then um, on their YouTube channel for everybody to see. So whether you have a New York Times subscription or not, you get to watch the film and enjoy it and discuss it in the comments. And, I mean, as a filmmaker who is engaged with trying to get as many people as possible to see the film, that's, that's best-case scenario. Yeah, absolutely. It helps to have a great mailing list, that's for sure. So besides, <laughs> you, yeah, besides YouTube, are there other venues that you've discovered that are friendly to distributing shorts? Many thought, you know, Quibi would offer a home for shorts, but that was a short-lived adventure, as it turned out. <laughs> Short-lived, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I was very hopeful for that platform, and I'm sad that it didn't work out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, honestly, you have to think about what it's uh, – my, my, the way I look at it, it's all, it's all about the audience and what they want and when they want it and what they're looking for. And so – there's a time in your day when you just want to collapse on the sofa after being berated by work and the world and whatever and drink a glass of wine and say, okay, let me escape for a few hours and just kind of like scroll through the rest of my day before I go to sleep. And, you know, there's certain kind of entertainment that is, that is good for that. Right. And you find that on streamers, you find it on, you know, Netflix and Disney Plus and some of these other places. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It, that's a beautiful thing. As humans, we do need to unplug and listen to a story and, you know, go on an adventure um, and escape uh, the travails of the world. We need that. A short documentary isn't really a great tool for that because it's, it, it's not long enough, right? But what it's an incredible tool for is to inspire you to teach you something, um, and to challenge you, right? To start you out with one idea, and 15 minutes later or 20 minutes later, you know, you have a few questions about that idea that you held before. And, you know, that's why I think the New York Times is such a great partner for the forum, because when you look at the New York Times, you know, obviously many times throughout the day, but most importantly, first thing in the morning with your cup of coffee, and you're coming to the world, you want to find out what's going on in the world today, you want to be inspired, you want to be filled with ideas, and that's the exact mood that we want to meet you in uh, and say, hey, meet this person, look at this amazing story that you may not have known before, look how, you know, look how, look what actually happened in the 20th century, here's a story you may not have known, and the way that you look at the world can be informed by this story, and that's an important part of what, you know, cinema can be used for too. And so anything that I think is some place that people go to be inspired or to learn is a place where short documentaries can live. So news platforms, YouTube, you know, Vimeo has been a great platform in the past. Um, and I think, I think honestly, it's a new frontier for streamers if they could see that, that this is not just sort of an end of the day thing. It also can be, a first thing in the morning thing. I want to get inspired. I want to learn about the world. But the best format for that is the short documentary. Well, you've certainly proven it's a powerful format. And I would like to take a moment to mention your most recent documentary, Another Short, and it features another female trailblazer whose story is low. For anyone who hasn't seen it yet, could you where to find it? 
Absolutely. Uh, the film is called The Best Chef in the World. You can also find it on the New York Times YouTube page. And it follows the story of Sally Schmidt, who is a pioneer of California cuisine. She was the original founder of the French Laundry, which she ran with her husband for 16 years before she sold it to Chef Thomas Keller, who's an amazing chef, who then transformed it into the best restaurant in the world. Um, and it's a story about balance in life. It's a story about um, ambition. It's a, it's a story about family. It's a story about work. And most importantly, it's a story about food and nourishment. Uh, and it's, we, we have, there's a lot of delicious footage in there, some of the most beautiful food you've ever seen. And Sally is also someone who tragically passed away between when we started filming the project and when it got released. Um, so it also serves as an important memorial of her spirit and story. Well, I'm so glad you got to chat with her, you know, before she passed. And, you know, this important female chef who was ahead of her time, it's great that you, you know, got to recognize her. So, and I also want to take a moment and circle back to the Queen of Basketball, which touches on Title IX and point out that yeah. you made a related documentary about Patsy Mink. And I was wondering if you could tell yeah. us a little bit about that film and where people can see that film. Well, no surprise, you can find it on the New York Times YouTube channel. Um, it's called Mink, with an exclamation point. It is executive produced by none other than Naomi Osaka. Uh, and it is this amazing, unbelievable story of Patsy Mink, who was the first congresswoman of color, and she authored and defended Title IX, which basically, you know, transformed America in terms of all kinds of things, but especially athletics and women in athletics. And actually it was the reason why Lucy had the opportunity to play on a team was Title IX, which passed in June 1972. Uh, and it's the story of how she just barely uh, was, able to, was able to save it from uh, people who wanted to tear it down and, and carve it out people who are representing the male athletics lobby. And it's told by her wonderful daughter, Wendy, uh, who actually had a, a hand in all of this because she got in a horrible, life-threatening car accident on the day of the vote, which ripped Patsy away from the Capitol at the critical moment. One of the things, um, well, first of all, I should say I was already a fan of uh, Patsy, but one thing I love that you cover in this film is that Title IX obviously, prohibited discrimination against students on the basis of sex. But a lot of people didn't really realize the impact that was going to have on women athletes, and it seems that if they had, they wouldn't have passed it in the first place. So it is pretty extraordinary that she was able to, to yeah. push it through. Um, and you did, again, a great job telling that story. And I, I guess I, I am curious, since all of these are on the, the New York Times site, are you an employee of the New York Times, or do you just collaborate <laughs> one project at a time? One project at a time. I'm, I'm not an employee. Uh, I don't have the honor of saying that. Um, but I'm certainly a fan. I've got my print edition of the New York Times sitting right here on my kitchen counter, we just we have a we have a, a lovely and productive partnership, and um, 
I, I love working with them and I'll work with them as long as I, I can. Um, I think it's uh yeah, it's a beautiful friendship and, and relationship and a great way for us to get the stories out there to as wide as possible an audience. And, and it should also be say, said that they help the, make the film as well, right? We don't bring the film to them in an absolute finished state. Um, they help shape it um, in its final stages. There's a giant fact-checking process, so we're collaborators as well. Well, yeah, obviously great collaborators. I have a few more questions, but I know we don't have a lot of time left. So before I move on, I want to give you a moment to share your website and your social media handles so our listeners can follow your career and check out all these amazing films you're making. Sure, yeah. So my company is called Breakwater Studios, and our website is breakwaterstudios.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Breakwater Studios. You can follow um, me on Instagram. I'm BG Proudfoot. Uh, I'm also BG Proudfoot on Twitter, and I think the company is Breakwater Stud. We couldn't Breakwater Studios is too long, so it's Breakwater Stud on Twitter. <laughs> Um, and we're on Facebook and all the other places too. Well, that's, I guess you got lucky that the, the, you know, character um, limit that gave you something kind of fun instead <laughs> of something, something not fun. So good for you. And um, in our final minutes here, I'm wondering if you have any advice that you would offer first time filmmakers. Yeah, I think, um, You know, uh, I, think, I think one of the biggest distractions in the film industry is the trappings of success and awards and prestige and fame and money. Um, and I think it's easy to get distracted as a young person by those things as marks of success. And, you know, as someone who has won an Academy Award, which is the highest possible honor, which I am hugely honored and thrilled to have received, it is only part of the picture of a meaningful career. And I think when you're first starting out, it's important to realize that, like, true satisfaction as a storyteller and as an artist comes from doing justice to the stories that you want to tell and doing justice to your, you know, the, the life that's in your heart. Um, and whatever you're connecting with out in the world. If you can continuously do that, you will be successful. Whether anyone else recognizes it or not, you will be successful. And so I just, I would encourage anyone who's just starting out to make things that satisfy your heart deeply rather than things that you think will please others or please a jury or a festival. Um, that's a false path. Um, and so, you will always do well if you listen to your heart and do it for that reason. Well, that's great advice. I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to share with our listeners. I didn't ask about maybe something you're working on now. Some people like to share that. Some people keep it under wraps. Um, no, I, I, you know, I, I always like to give a shout out to the short documentary as a format. You know, it's something that doesn't have a lot of advocates because there's not a lot of money involved in short documentaries, at least not yet. And so I always just, you know, want to take a minute and let people explore the idea of, like, 
you know, in, you don't go to an art museum and they say all the small paintings are here for free in the lobby. And on the second floor are the medium-sized paintings. And on the top floor, for an extra admission fee, you can see all the real big paintings on the top floor. And yet that's exactly how we categorize cinema, right? The shorter it is, the less valuable it is. And I think that's silly and kind of like, you know, uh, primitive thinking and a, a silly way to assess quality uh, and assess, assess importances by size or length. And so I just challenge people to think about, you know, what is the goal of art? Isn't it elegance? Isn't it, you know, trying to achieve something with as few elements as possible? And certainly the short documentary has the lowest barrier of entry with filmmaking being so incredibly expensive. And so the more robust and thriving the short documentary scene is, that, that can be the front door of cinema. It's the place where no matter you know, where you come from or whatever few resources you may have in this world that has a lot of financial inequality, you can still access cinema. And uh, I think that's really important as we enter the next chapter. It's not to make movies more expensive, it's to make them less expensive. It's not to keep storytellers out, it's to bring them in. And I think the, I think the short documentary is is number one in the ways that we can do that. So I just would ask everybody listening to reassess your perspective on short documentary. It's not simply a student format. Um, it really can be the beacon for the future of cinema. Well, it also seems a lot of people have shrinking attention spans. So I think in that regard, <laughs> that's a that's another point. There you go. Yep. Well, we're running out of time here, but I did want to ask you one final question, Ben, if you're willing. Uh, in our in the bio, we found out that you're a magician, and I was wondering if you could tell us what your favorite magic trick is. Could you describe it, or is it a secret? My maybe it's a secret. My favorite magic trick. Oh goodness. Um, well, I really loved. There's a there's an old magic trick called the cups and balls. Uh, which is kind of derivative of like a sh the shell game where you have inverted cups, metal cups, um, and you have little like knit uh, balls that are underneath and they jump around and then magical things happen. And I loved that trick and I did a lot of experimentation and things with that trick when I was a magician. And um, I guess if I had to pick one, I would pick that. Well, terrific. And um, thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Claire, for, again, the lovely introduction and handling all the tech. And that's our show this week. So thanks again. Yes. Thank right. you very much thank for having me. Thank you, Ben. Me. Okay. Take care well, and thanks, be well, ben. everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. 
I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>